you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, we'll be at the end of the chapter. It is so good to see so many people in church on the Lord's Day. What an exciting thing uh, to see just week in and week out. We are um, just wanting to say thank you from our core team, from the people that are planting in Fremont. We just want to say thank you. We feel unbelievably supported. There have been a hundred little conversations where we've caught somebody in a grocery store or at a restaurant and someone has said, hey, um, let me tell you about Harvest Fremont. And there's all these little conversations taking place, little rumors or whatever you call them. And we're so thankful that there's a church that's cheerleading us and supporting us. We feel overwhelmingly loved. And we're just so thankful for this church, which, we, which we've called home for the last five years. Our staff is not alone. It's not just going to be my wife and I, uh, Aaron and Jessica Dollar work at Harvest Peoria, and they're wrapping up their ministry work there. They'll be heading up with us next month, and Aaron will be our worship director and our youth director. His brother, Adam, is on our staff, and even though Aaron has much more facial hair, he is, in fact, the younger of those two brothers. And Aaron and his wife, Jessica, love the Lord. We've been friends with them for years now, and we're excited to do ministry with them. A couple of months ago, Phil and Kelvin and another pastor or two we're in Cal's office, and they said, so what are you going to name this new church? You know, you don't have to name it Harvest Bible Chapel. What do you think you'll call it? And my mind flashed back to 2009. My son, Taylor, was about a week or two old, and we had brought him to church for the first time. And one of our old senior pastors walked up to us and said, <clears throat> I assume you've named your child after a hero of the faith in Scripture. And I said, well, no, sir, we actually have named him Taylor. <coughs> I trust. Uh, Taylor is a family name? Um, no, we've actually named him after a guitar. <laughs> <coughs> I see, and then he walked away, never to talk to me again. And so Phil's over there going, hey, Eric, Eric, what are you going to name your church? And I'm like, I don't want to screw this up. I don't want to make a mistake here. And so Aaron and Jessica and my wife and I started to talk. What do we want to name our ministry? And we could not get over Matthew chapter 9. If you would, would you look with me at verse number 36? The Bible says that Jesus, coming out of his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 8, saw a leper and cleansed him. He saw a centurion whose servant needed to be healed and he was healed. Jesus started to heal many and 814, he just healed a lot of people. In verse 23, he calmed a storm that was raging. There were two men with demons in verse 26. He cast the demons out. In chapter 9, verse 1, there was a paralyzed man. He healed the paralyzed man, allowed him to walk. Matthew was a tax collector in, in verse 9 of chapter 9, probably skinning the till, and Jesus changed that man and brought him to himself. In verse 18, a girl is restored to life, and then a woman is healed. In verse 27, Two men are blind, and he gives them sight. In verse 32, a man can't speak, and he gives him words. And then we see this in verse 36. He saw the crowds, and he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. For Jesus in that moment, his ministry had begun, and he was just scratching the surface, healing and changing and moving and in this moment, his heart is broken because there are more harassed and helpless people. And to connect the dots, he says, it's like they are sheep 
without a shepherd. Verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Harvest Fremont sounds like a pretty good name for a church. (laughs) Harvest Spring Lake, what a great name for this church. Jesus was broken over the fact that there are so many people. It's like a harvest of people. It's like wandering sheep. They need to hear of the good news of Jesus. And his heart was broken. Is your heart broken today? Here's the big idea. Harvest is more than a name. It's what I do. You can get to the place where you don't just go to a harvest church, but you are part of kingdom work. You're part of the harvest. Harvest can be more than just a name. So we have to ask ourselves some questions today. Here's the first one. Like Jesus, can I see many beat up people? As Jesus looked over the crowds, he couldn't help but sit in this moment. These people are beat up. And so the master illustrator, to help us get a vision for what he saw, he says it's like they're sheep without a shepherd. It's like that they are, they are number one, harassed. They're beat up people. I think sometimes in, in scripture and in life, by seeing animals, we can connect a little bit better. And so he's helping us visualize this here. This is what we know about sheep. Very um, few animals does a sheep have authority over. Almost all animals have authority over a, a sheep. There's many predators. There's bears and wolves and all kinds of problems for the sheep. Even sheep dogs, their peers, are, have authority over them. If you go to a farm that has sheep and some farm cats, the tendency is for the farm cat to have authority over the sheep. And that, kids, is called a sucker punch, if you don't know what a sucker punch is. Do you notice what the sheep does? Now, it's got one move in its arsenal, um, headbutt and run away. Did you notice what happened there? I'm going to attack, and then I'm going to immediately run out of fear. Nope. A A sheep doesn't have authority. It faces so many enemies. In this crowd that Jesus looked at, There were people beat up by their finances. I never seem to have enough. I'm always working. I'm always doing. I'm always paying bills. There's never enough. I feel beat up. There are people that Jesus was looking at in this crowd that were beat up by others. I'm always being persecuted. There's always a Roman soldier pushing me around. There's always a tax collector taking more than he should. There were others that were harassing these people. In this crowd today, there are people that feel beat up. It's like, all I'm trying to do is be a nice guy, and I'm always facing problems. All I'm trying to do is stay healthy, but my body is constantly afflicting me. I've been to church after church, and religion has just beat me up, and I'm, I'm sick of it. And Jesus, his heart broke in this moment because he said that there are many, many beat up people. Are you beat up today? Number two, can we see what Jesus saw? 
He said there are many clueless people. There are people that just don't know how to get unstuck. I'm not an expert on agriculture and herds, but I have lived in Fremont for five weeks now. So I'm basically a farmer and <laughs> I definitely know more than most of you, let's be honest. So I've been in, I've been in Fremont for a few weeks. I, I don't know everything, but what I do know about sheep is that sheep are kind of like two-year-olds. They spend a lot of their time getting in trouble, getting stuck, snotting all over everything. And a good shepherd says, hey, get back here, and is constantly guiding them back. One word that can define sheep, and that's the word stuck. Over and over again, a sheep's tendency is to get in situations that it should not be in. It stayed there too long. It was messing with things it shouldn't have been messing with. It was in an area that, that it wasn't supposed to be in. And so a good shepherd is bringing the sheep back. Uh, helping them get out of tough situations. <laughs> sheep are wanderers. They like to find out new places, and, and sometimes they get in a situation where they just can't do anything. In fact, a sheep, sometimes if you go to a place where there are a lot of sheep and shepherds, uh, sheep will get flipped up on their back, and if the sheep is stuck on its back, usually it can't flip itself back over, and so you just see four legs kicking in the air like a dog that's sleeping, and you know that that sheep is stuck. A good shepherd is flipping that sheep over, pulling it away from the fence, getting it to a safe place. Psalms 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me to green, safer pastures. Are you clueless today? Do you keep feeling like all I'm doing is getting stuck it might be too humbling for you to admit that you're associating with a sheep, for real. It might be too humbling for you to admit that you're stuck and you need someone to pull you out, but there are two groups of us today in this room. There are people that are sheep with a shepherd, and there are people that are sheep without a shepherd. If you're shepherdless today, if you're getting stuck and there's no one that's helping you get out and you just feel like you keep running into a brick wall, please hear the heartbeat of this church. We believe here at Harvest that this world was created by a creator. And there's so much in creation that screams that there's a creating God, it's impossible for us to argue. I watched a video yesterday with my son. He was asking me, how is metal made? And so I said, well, let's find out. And so we're watching a video on ore and limestone and all of this stuff and heat and how it forms together and makes a metal and how there's a countless amount of new metals that can be formed by pushing different elements and heat together. And the research behind it is staggering. And the limitless possibilities for more flexible metals in the future is staggering. And my mind goes to this. Our God's created that. My mind is blown away by that. And every time I see a new piece of creation, I am convinced without a doubt there must be a creator behind that. We believe that without a shadow of a doubt here. But beyond that, we believe here at Harvest that our creator is loving, that he sent his son. He didn't just create this place, but he created it out of love, that he loves us even when we're stuck, even when we're wedged in an awkward place again. God is there to bring us back. If you're stuck today, 
Um, I, I hope that maybe Matthew 5 would, would give you some comfort. I hope that Matthew 5 would give you some understanding of what it looks like to have a shepherd. I'll put the verses on the screen here in just a moment. Romans 5 verse 12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of sin. You might not think of these verses here, these next 10 verses, scripture that you would look to for salvation, but there's so much the gospel here in these verses. The Bible says that one man sinned and because of Adam's sin, it spread into the world and all have sinned. And you might argue with yourself and say, if there is a loving creator God, why is there so much racism and so much disease on our planet? Why are there politicians and all of this garbage that I face? And really a creator God created this? This is what we believe? That's on us. Our sin, it's spreading in the world and that is on us. Verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But the free gift, verse 15, it's not like the trespass. For if many died because of one man's trespass, and by the way, many have. I've been to too many funerals to argue otherwise. People die because of sin. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. It took one man to screw everything up and it took one man to get us unstuck. His name was Jesus, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's the green pasture. That was the greatest act of all time, Jesus on the cross. For as by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, the turning point of the saga, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you're wandering and you're stuck today, Scripture says this, there's a God who's made a way for us to be unstuck. We've done this to ourselves. Our sin has wedged us in a place and we can't get out, but he has died for us. Eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you're stuck today, understand that you're not alone. There are, again, two people in this room, the sheep without a shepherd and the sheep with. There are just people here that would say, I have a saving knowledge of Jesus because I've stopped pointing my finger at God and I've started to bend my knee before him. If you're clueless today, please understand that there's one way and his name is Jesus. Number three, can you see this? Scripture says there are many harassed people. There are many helpless people. And number three, there are few guiding voices. There's much work to be done today globally. Uh, we, we cheerlead ministries around our globe that are starting churches because we need more of them. There's also much work to be done locally. When we think of Muskegon County and Harvest North Muskegon and now Nuego County, Harvest Fremont and Ottawa County, Harvest Spring Lake and 
other like-minded churches, there is local work to be done. There's generational work. There's always children being born. There are always teenagers that are processing their faith. And God says this, there's much work, but few people. There'll tend to be a voice in our head that says, well, let's let the preachers, let's let the missionaries, let's let the small group leaders, let's let people that are paid or in a position to do things take the brunt of the work when it comes to evangelism, preaching the good news of Jesus. You are in a place today that God has called you to right now. He wants you to be part of the work. He's asking us to pray that more people in this church will be involved in the work because there's much more to be done in Ottawa County. There are many people at the grocery store that have no clue what it is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you feel the weight? There are many people and there are few that are guiding. Verse number four. Finally, do you see that there's one Lord in control? There's a lot of weight in verses 36 and 37, but look where relief comes from. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This whole thing of evangelism and witnessing to the lost and reaching people, he's in control of it. He's the Lord of the harvest. It's not ours. It's not on our shoulders. I don't even know why he asks us to be part of the process, but he does. We're invited to become laborers in this harvest. And it's his. He's in control. Today is harvest time. People are dying today. He knows about it. It's not like he's ignorant and needs us to tell him. It's not like he's complacent and unwilling to do anything about it. For whatever reason... He's inviting us to be involved in the work and we have the decision to make in or out to watch and attend a harvest church or to be in the harvest. So here's the question. What are the types of things in my life that keep me out of the harvest? I think most of us would agree there's work to be done. We see it at our workplace. We see it at the school. We see it at the grocery store. There's all kinds of people that we need to engage with What are the things that keep us quiet, that keep us out? As we're going through these, I hope you'll check one and say, that's for me. This is a thing. This is a hurdle. It keeps tripping me up. I can't get over it. It's keeping me quiet. Here's the first one. A double lifestyle will keep us out of the harvest. When I'm living a certain way in solitude by myself, it's really hard to talk about the good news of Jesus because I know the duplicity there. And a double lifestyle will do that. And God wants to break every believer from double lifestyle living. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. God wants to break us from that so we can live in the place where where there's less hypocrisy. Never perfection, but less hypocrisy. It'll also, double lifestyle will also keep us from sharing the truth if we're consumed by the hypocrisy of our church or by religion as a whole. A pastor's burned me in the past. I go to small group with someone who's burned me. So it's really hard to invite people to my church when I know that there's hypocrites in there and they're already skeptical about Christianity. And they keep saying, like, is that a flash in the pan ministry? Where do you go to church? I'm skeptical of that. 
And so it's really hard sometimes for us to invite people to church because we're wrapped up by the fact that sometimes we don't live up to the standard of Christianity that we should. Would you look with me at chapter 10, verse 1? It says this. Now Christ has just called these men, challenged them. There's much work to be done. And so in verse 10 we see that he called to him his 12 disciples and then he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal diseases and every affliction. And the name of the 12 apostles are these. Simon, Peter, Andrew, James and John, Philip, Thomas, Matthew the tax collector, James, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Hypocrisy. There's nothing new under the sun. Coming out of the need for more evangelism, what did Christ do? He gathers 12 people. One's a doubter. One's a tax collector who's been known for ripping people off. Another's, another just can't keep his mouth shut. And the last one's a snake, demon-possessed at one point. The church will always, has always been full of hypocrisy. That's something we have to, we have to wrap our minds around. But here's the good news. We don't preach hypocrites. We preach Jesus. And so we're part of a church with sinners that are getting stuck in their ways and God's redeeming them and, and, and moving them. We're not here to preach the goodness of every hypocrite in this room. We are here to preach the goodness of the God who gets us unstuck, who forgives us. Anyway, don't let double-mindedness keep you from sharing your faith. Today is harvest time. People are dying today. And just because we're in a camp with sinners... There's probably a snake or two in our church. Doesn't keep us, can't keep us silent. Next, number two. A high value of my identity will keep me out of the harvest. A price tag that's placed on my reputation and how I'm viewed will absolutely keep me out of the harvest. When I was a teenager, my family went to um, Florida for the summer, and we were there one summer, and we were at a campground, and there was a teenager that was playing basketball with my brother and I, and we were talking to him, and at some point, we started to talk about Christianity or church or something, and I remember getting a Gideon Bible out of the cabin, and my uh, brother was kind of talking to him and stuff like that, and he asked an interesting question. He said, if I was to like steal something, does that mean I'm going to hell? And we were saying, well, yes, uh, every sin, you know, sends us to hell, but we can ask for forgiveness. And we were doing the best we could as 15 years, year olds to talk to him. He said, good, because I stole these sunglasses out of that store over there and I can be forgiven for that. And we were just engaging in a conversation with him. And a day or two later, two girls came to the campground and they were like 15 and they started to hang out by the basketball courts, and I remember him talking to the girls, and he was acting different and funnier around them than normal. I was acting different and funnier around them than normal. And he goes, hey, let me introduce you to two, these two guys. And he goes, this is Bible Boy, and this is King James Kid next to him. And he started to, like, tease us in front of them because he was just trying to, like, impress the girls and kill the competition or something. I don't know what he was doing. Here's the brutal truth. Two words, Bible Boy, shut me up. My 15, 
old reputation was so important to me, my, my testimony was so important to me, I was way quieter the rest of my time with him. As a 15-year-old, we're consumed with how we're perceived, aren't we? Uh, hey, teenagers in the room, your parents aren't much different. <laughs> As adults, we do the same thing. It's, but how will I be perceived by Jim and Creed at the office? How will they, how will they view me? How will I be perceived by my, my cousins and my family members that I engage with? When we put too high of a value, too high of a price tag on our reputation, it keeps us out of the harvest. We put too high of a value on our past. People have known me as this guy. At every party, I was this guy, and now I'm supposed to be this guy. Romans 6.6, 6, we know our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Are we dead to that reputation? We should be. Today's harvest, we, we can wait if we want, but the harvest is ready today. People are dying today, and we have a decision to make. Do we want to be part of it, or do we want to watch it? Is our reputation more valuable than the people around us? Here's the next one. Fear of awkwardness will keep us out of the harvest. Oh, this is a biggie. Fear of being in 30 seconds of awkward fuzz will often keep us quiet when we know the Holy Spirit is prodding us to be more vocal. You might say, I'm, I'm kind of a timid person. I'm kind of an introvert. I, I'm shy. Whatever word you use to define yourself, um, you're not alone. Here's a few confessions of people who have a fear of awkwardness. When I first talk to someone, I act proper because I'm not exactly sure when I can start acting weird. <laughs> when I'm at the store and someone is standing in front of something I need, I pretend to look at other things until they move. One day I bumped into a mannequin and said, sorry. <laughs> then said, oh, I thought you were a person. It was then I realized I'm still talking to a mannequin. Maybe you've said in your head, I'm afraid that I'll have eye contact with someone. I'm afraid I'll have to make a phone call to someone I don't know. Can't I just text them? I'm afraid I'll be forced to play an icebreaker at a baby shower. Those things are the worst. How can I preach the kingdom of God? I don't like being outgoing. I don't like coming out of my shell. I don't like having conversations. And things just get awkward, and I would prefer not to. Every, every one of us, the most shy person in this room, uh, the most introverted soul here today is excited about something. It might be cats. Not, not farm cats, but cats. It might be our TV show. The first two seasons of Battlestar Galactica, the third one was not as good, but the first two, it might be the, the car that we drive, the hairdo that we have, the job that we're a part of. There's something that, that makes us smile that makes us come out of our shell, that we're excited to discuss and talk about, is Jesus, is the good saving knowledge of Jesus in that camp? Are you extroverted about that? Or is that the thing that you are most introverted about? Don't allow a fear of awkwardness to keep you from listening to the Holy Spirit. Today is harvest time. People are dying today. 
What if, because of your fear of awkwardness, you don't engage in conversations you should? Maybe no one ever looks them in the eyes their whole life. Maybe no one in their entire life ever wraps their arm around them and says, let me pray with you. What if someone lives their entire life, 75 years of fluff and filler in Ottawa County, and no one ever invited them to their church? Don't allow fear of awkwardness to be that thing that keeps you from joining the harvest. The laborers are few. The complainers are many. The awkward fearers are many. The compromisers are many. But the laborers are few. Here's the next one. It'll keep us out. Skepticism. Some of us, we're not in the harvest because we're skeptical of God today. And, and, and I would encourage you to, to play that out, search that out. If you're, if you're not entirely sure of uh, God being good and him being creator, please spend some time researching that. You need, to, you need to know about your faith before you talk about it. And some of us, uh, we've had the tendency maybe in our youth and in our past to talk about things that we didn't know about. That needs to be figured out. What I'm talking about is skepticism over life change. I've grown up with this cousin. I've worked with this guy for 17 years. I know what their tendency is, and I'm not quite sure that God could change them, and so there's no reason to even talk to them anyway. In the past, my wife and I have owned a few rental houses, and one of my tenants and I were talking about a year ago, and um, I was asking him where he went to high school, and he said, Fruitport High School. And I said, really? When did you graduate? And uh, I said, do you know Dan Cook? And he goes, uh, yeah, I know Dan Cook. And I said, yeah, he's, I'm one of the pastors at his church. He's one of the pastors there with me. We're friends. And he goes, oh, no, 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 different Dan Cook. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 Dan Cook um, married Christy Hewlings. Has to be a different Dan Cook. And I'm like, no, he's got a rainbow tattoo right here in his arms. And he's like, there's no way. It has to be a different Dan Cook. He couldn't mentally process Dan Cook's a pastor? For real? It, it, it just was so distant for him. Some of us, my mechanic, he ripped me off. He ripped me off. There's no hope there. My cousin, my ex, uh, there's no hope there. Is your skepticism in life changed? Keeping you from sharing your faith? By God's glory, 49 people were baptized at our churches last weekend. There were people in the baptism tank and there were members in this crowd that said, no way. Now, I've seen everything. We have a God who takes the worst of us, the most stuck sheep, and brings them back to the fold. Don't allow skepticism to keep you from realizing that. And last one, status quo. This is the way it's always been. In Matthew chapter 8, there were lepers. They had been lepers for a long time. The servant was killed. Let's plan a funeral. That's what people are supposed to do. Many people were sick and God healed them. There was a storm. The normal thing to do is to hide out until the storm is over. He stopped the storm. There were two men with demons. The normal thing to do is to run away from demon-possessed people. There was a paralyzed man. The normal thing to do is to feel pity for him. He made him walk. There was a tax collector who was a joke and God went after his soul. There was a 
girl that was dead, no funeral plans, no weeping. There, were, there was joyous tears coming out of his time with her. There were two blind men that only knew what it was like to feel around in the dark, and he gave them sight. There was a man that couldn't speak, and he said, let me give you words. The gospel, Jesus, is the enemy of status quo. And so sometimes in our life, we get stuck in these habits and routines, and it's like we keep doing the same thing over and over again because it's the way it's always been done. My marriage has always looked like this. I've always talked to my wife like this. I've always gone to the work Christmas party and it's always like this. And so we get stuck in what is normal. We get stuck in the routine. The gospel is the enemy of routine. Today is harvest time. Maybe you've never witnessed to a person in your life. Maybe you've never talked to somebody about going to your church ever. Maybe you've never shared the gospel with someone and said, let me show you some scripture in Romans. The gospel is the enemy of status quo. You don't have to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. In fact, God's really good at taking our routine and breaking it. So how do I join the harvest? How do I get more involved? How do I make this a normal part of my life? Here's the first thing that we see. Number one, earnest prayer. The tendency in this passage says, too much work. There's too few workers to our knees. Pray earnestly. Intense, intentional, convicted prayer. Less flashy than we would assume, but it's what is prescribed. We need less evangelistic technique when it comes to courageous evangelism. We need less bait-and-switch theology we need less become their friends and slowly infiltrate their personality. We need less catfish theology when it comes to our evangelism. We need more earnest prayer for people. Last night, a lady talked to me about how she used to drive down the road and see dozens of people walking around this building praying that God would do a work here years and years and years ago. She's like, to think that I get to go to church here knowing that God was answering the prayers of those righteous people encompassing this building. We've been in Fremont now for a month or two. Conversations have started with, you don't know me, but we've been praying for a church like this, for a core team like this to land in this area. Tuesday night, we had another one. We've been praying for this community four years. Hear me, you are answering our prayers. You know what God says? You want to be a more effective evangelist? Earnest prayer that, Lord, that the Lord would do his work. When should I start praying? Today's harvest time. People are dying today. It's time for us to stop praying for the, for the horizontal things in our life and to start praying for kingdom work. Here's the next thing that we can do to be more equipped for the harvest growing humility. This thing about revival for dead believers, this thing about salvation for lost souls, it's way less on our shoulders and it's way more on God's. There are parents in our church that have struggled. My teenager has wandered from the faith and there's nothing I can do in my power. And I tried so hard when they were growing up to reach them for Jesus and there's nothing I can do. Scripture is clear. 
He's the Lord of the harvest. He knows what we're doing. We're just asked to labor next to him. Scripture is clear. It's his harvest. Week after week for five years now, my wife and I have been part of this church. Every time I worship, I think to myself, God, I have no business being here. You know my pile of sin. You know the wrong I've done. You know the sin you're saving me from. And yet, you allow me to be part of a church like this? Maybe you've never, ever witnessed to a soul. Maybe you've never shared your faith. You will become a more effective evangelist when you grow in your humility and you understand that God is in so much more control of this than you are. It's not about your personality style. It's not about your ability to convince someone. It's about your faith in God, knowing that he's in control today. Number three, this is the key, authenticity. As a kid, I grew up learning the Romans road. I went to college and I took classes about how to engage with people that were lost. We need more authenticity. Less less show, less I got my act together, more reality, because people can smell a lie. That's why God at Work videos are so powerful, right? Man, look at what God has done in their life. They were broken, and God moved there. They had a sin bent, and God moved there, and God changed them. Every single child of God in this room has something unique. Their God at Work story. And if you're a believer, people don't need to see how you've got your act together. People don't need to see how perfect you are and that you have every answer for every theological question ever thrown at you. People don't need to see that. People need to see the real thing. People love authenticity because you love it. Deep down inside of your heart, you hate the fake and you want what's real. And a growing authenticity is needed in this church, in our lives, in this community. And then number four, courageous. It's a great word. Steps. Of obedience. We need to be more courageous as we take our steps with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 10, verse 1. And he called his 12 disciples and he gave them authority. Verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out. Verse 6. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, disciples, go and they went. Has the Holy Spirit ever called you to go and you've not gone? In 2005, I was sick. I was a senior in college and I took a few days off of class because I was just really sick. And so our dorm had an infirmary, which was basically the sick room. And I was stuck there for a few days and I was bored. And for whatever reason, I took out a pad of paper and I started to write a few letters to some people. And I wrote a letter to a family member and a college professor that I had, and I was just burning some time because I wasn't in class. And I, I, I felt the Lord really encouraged me to write a letter to my cousin, Riley. And my cousin was 18 years old. He was graduating from high school at the time, and he had just gotten a scholarship to run track at Michigan State University. And so it was in the news. Somebody sent me a little article, and I wrote him a letter, and I said, Riley, first of all, like, we're so proud of you. Uh, there's another Klingle going to college. That's so cool. I think there's two of us now. <laughs> and I was just holding a conversation with him in our letter. And I, and I shared the gospel with him. 
and I shared him a few verses from Romans, uh, chapter 5 and 6. And I said, hey, do you know Jesus? Because I don't have my act together. I'm in a Bible college, but I don't have my act together. And the one thing I do uh, know is that Jesus saves sinners. And I don't think I've ever talked to you about salvation. And I wrote him a letter, and I sent it. He got it, um, responded to me. He put, the, he put a new letter on his desk. He put a stamp on it and set it there. And the next morning, he got in a car. And on his way to school, he died in a car accident. And uh, I spent the next week flying from college back to Michigan to help with a funeral. And um, I had to walk into his room. My family's like, there's a letter waiting for you. And I'm opening it up, and I'm reading him say, um, I'm figuring this out. I, I do believe in God, and thank you for talking to me. I hope we can talk more. And we never did. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. There's been a whole lot of times I've quenched the Holy Spirit, but I'm so glad I did it on April 18th of 2005. I'm so glad I was part of the harvest. The sheer irony of how God works, he ran for Fremont High School. And so now here I am going to Fremont to plant a church. Fremont Wesleyan just rolled the red carpet out for us to have a funeral at their church. And now I'm holding conversations with people that are 13 years in the making, conversations I never thought I would have. And God was orchestrating in all of that. If the Holy Spirit is prodding you this week, if the Holy Spirit is prodding you this year to take a courageous step of obedience, let me challenge you. The harvest, it's not next year, it's today. People are dying today. It broke the heart of Jesus. The harassed are many. The compromisers are many. The lukewarm are many. But the laborers are few. Will you make harvest more than just the name of your church? Let's pray together. God, I believe that there are many people in this church that are sick of complacency. And God, you've changed them and deep, deep down inside of their heart, they know it's for something more than just the life that they've been living. Many of us, God, will live our whole lives and have a few moments that truly matter. And God, as, as, as much of our future hinges on that, I pray that you would give us more courage to stand out and step out when we should. God, my prayer is for this church as we, we begin today, really, to partner a work with them. God, I just thank you for the legacy. I thank you for the gospel preaching that's taking place in this church and on our campuses. And God, we truly believe that there's more to do. God, there always will be more to do. And God, I just pray for our people. I pray that there are hundreds in Nuego County one day that are proclaiming the truth of Jesus. I pray that there are thousands in Ottawa County and in Muskegon County that are proclaiming the good news of Jesus, God, because there's always a lost person around the corner that needs Jesus. And until that work is done, God, we pray you would help us to continue. Our tendency is to get stuck. Our tendency is to be quiet. God, we pray that you would give us a voice. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray.